Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is available at thejazzsession.com, and you'll also find it in iTunes, and you can subscribe using an RSS reader, and you'll find all the links for those things at thejazzsession.com. We are continuing on, or I am at least, with the 100 by 300 campaign. The goal is to get 100 members by the 300th show. Thousands of you listen to every single show. The show's been downloaded more than 1.1 million times, if you can believe that. And yet, uh, three dozen of you have become members so far, and I need a little bit more than that. I need a slightly higher percentage of the thousands of you who listen to become members in order for this show to keep going. So to find out how to become a member for as little as 10 bucks a month, you can visit thejazzsession.com slash join. Thanks. Today's interview is with John Armstrong. He's part of the band Slumgum, uh, based in L.A. John was in town to play uh, with a different band that he uh, sometimes plays with, uh, Vinnie Golia's band. And... We got together on a very windy, very rainy, really yucky day. We met at Columbus Circle, the shops at Columbus Circle in New York, um, and tried to find a place there. It was really too noisy. So we went to a place that I see all the time when I walk down the street, which is this American Bible Institute that's on Broadway near Columbus Circle. And it has a little uh, seating area inside that always looked very quiet as I walked by it, and there was hardly ever anyone sitting there. Um, so we decided to give that a shot and walked in and asked, you know, can we sit in your seating area? And they said, sure. And uh, we started to do an interview, and you'll hear what happened as a result. Uh, the one thing you won't hear is that in between the Bible, call, the Bible Institute or whatever it's called and where we eventually did the interview, uh, we tried a third place uh, the atrium that's right next door to the the Bible Institute, and uh, we got there at like 4.30, and they were closing at 5, so there wouldn't have been enough time. The reason I didn't originally bring John to my apartment, which is quite close to Columbus Circle, is that my apartment has no furniture in it, <laughs> and so we had to do the interview sitting on the floor. Uh, I think that's exactly how they do it at NPR. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> it was that reminds me of my time there actually that we did a lot of things just sitting on the floor in empty apartments. So uh, John luckily was uh was a good sport and uh went along with the entire thing and, and is very fascinating. And I think you'll dig their record which I know I did uh and which is what inspired me to ask him to come on the show. The album is called Cardboard Flavored Fiber. <laughs> and here it is. <laughs>
My guest is John Armstrong. We were recording probably, I'm guessing, for the first and last time inside the Cafe of the American Bible Society uh, here in New York City. <laughs> Welcome to the Jazz Session. Thank you very much. It's good to You're be welcome. here. You're welcome. I'm sure it is. Uh, it's a really ugly day, and uh, John is in town from the West Coast and enjoying some of our New York weather. And here to talk about uh, the new record by Slum Gum, which I think, if just doing it off the top of my head, is cardboard flavored fiber. That's is perfect. That, oh. It's cardboard. Cardboard. Flavored. Okay. Yeah. Nice. So, uh, can we talk about uh, this? Just right off the top, because people will certainly ask the name of the band, the name of the record. Those are the two obvious top questions sure well the name of the band uh slum gum comes from an experience our bass player dave tranquina had he worked uh, as a summer uh for a summer as a beekeeper a beekeeper's assistant in santa barbara california and so he put on the whole suit he did the whole thing and they would uh they would process honey by going to different farms around okay. that area and so he would take uh honey from clover fields and from orange uh, vineyards and stuff like this and what he would do is they would take and process the honey and so the honey process is similar to olive oil that there's pressings and so if after all the pressings what's left is this sort of viscous nasty uh, dark substance they call slum gum that has not a lot of uses although sometimes it's used as baker's honey okay in volume and we really liked it specifically because when we were asking around people were mostly offended by that name. <laughs> so we thought that was, that was interesting. It really showcased the sense of humor of the band. We try not to That's take great. ourselves too s- seriously. People were offended by it like, just because of the sound of the word? Exactly. It's just not That's a pleasant-sounding uh, couple of syllables. <laughs> uh, but it's really stuck with us, no pun intended. And it's just been uh, – it's really – I think it's it, you know, similar to your name, how your name goes sort of changing your personality, like – John as opposed to Johnny or something. Right. I think Slum Gum sort of helped us keep a sense of humor throughout our experience together and keep it light and really, really work together. Yeah. Uh, and can you talk about the name of the record? Yeah, the name of the record is uh, based on a song on the album, which is the song I wrote called Cardboard Flavored Fiber. Right. Um, the song itself is it's based on... Um, I mean, emotionally, it's based on uh, this sort of struggle on one side. It's sort of an A-B composition, and the A, the sort of the funky part, sort of again eventually succumbs to the B, which is the sort of this elation, this sort of rubato elation. And that's just this, the A being the struggle of banging your head against the wall and just really working towards something. And, uh, and B being like the result and the, the resolution at the end of doing it. Um, and we just sort of liked it because it's it just sort of, it's similar to the slum gum. It just sort of keeps it light. And it's specifically about a good fiber content. And uh, the result of that is a specific <laughs> example of that emotional relationship I just described. Not to get too blue. Yeah, but that's, that's, that's fine. We're not on the radio yet. Yeah. <laughs> I, think, I think we're all following. Good. Um, so uh, this, this record seems to live in this space that that definitely exists these days where there is like this modern classical element there's a jazz element whatever that means i'm even making air quotes there's a kind of a rock thing that happens but it's but it's in that it's in that space that a lot of people are seem to be carving out these days that is i guess categoryless uh-huh. in a way which i really like 
Uh, can you talk a little bit about, I guess, the, the backgrounds, of maybe your backgrounds that, that led into the sound that we hear on this record? Absolutely. The, this record especially um, is really just a, a confluence of events and a confluence of uh, artistic inspirations from all of us. So one of my favorite things about Slumgum is all four of us compose for the band uh, and pretty much equally. There's no one compositional voice that takes over. And you know what, I, sh I should interrupt you, and I should have done this earlier to say, will you just say who's in the band? Yeah, of yeah. course. So we have Rory Cowell plays piano in the band, and David Tranquina plays upright bass. Trevor Andrews plays drums, and I play. John Armstrong plays tenor saxophone. And each one of us brings in compositions in different uh, forms, like some including the song Big Fun that appears on the album, I believe, five or six times. That was a song written by Trevor, and it's just a sketch. It's just one melody, four phrases. And he brought that in. We've had it for a while. And it's just been a pleasure to reinvent that all the time in different performances. And it'll be glue in a live performance. Someone will just quote it and will kind of just exist in there for a little bit before going somewhere else. And that sound of where we are now really is from the four of us working together. So our rehearsals are a bit of a laboratory. People will bring in music and it'll be either a through composed finished composition or it'll be just a little sketch of something. Sure, we're recording an interview. Okay, uh, we don't really know how that's here. Did you, unless you got prior permission? It has nothing to do with your institution. We're just sitting here using your table. I understand that, but I prefer you didn't have, you didn't do an interview yet. Okay. Okay, if, if, if there was some, if the building management had okayed, but they don't allow these things like taking photos and things like that, or using these kind of things here. I'm sorry. You know we're not taking any video or anything, right? This I is just audio. That, but, but yeah, just if we were just sitting here talking and not recording it, would it be fine? That would be fine. And so what's the difference between that and recording the sound just of our the voices? Way, just the way they, the rules are in the department, in this, in this building. They don't like audio, video equipment being used without permission of the building manager. Who is there a, then there's no way to get that permission? Not, unless you, not, not now. He's not off now. on weekends and I'm just enforcing what he, his rules are. Okay. Okay. Sorry to bother. Yeah, me too. Seems like a kind of ridiculous rule. Yeah, so we got we got booted by the by the Christians out of the American Bible Society. 
And uh, but I, I'm going to forgive them, as, as Bill Hicks would have encouraged us to do. Yeah. So. <laughs> So I don't. I think what we what you were talking about at that moment was the uh, combination of of uh, backgrounds that led to the music that we're hearing yeah. on this record. Yeah. So yeah. So briefly, uh, um, Rory Cowell has. I mean, all of us have a strong background in jazz, of course, and that's really what is our common language, of course, like improvisational music. But Rory comes from a strong background in twenty like all kinds of classical music, certainly, but 20th century classical music and sort of new techniques in uh, composition in terms of like taking it away from the, the tonal settings. And he has a very sh- strong relationship to the piano. I mean, he just really, and he has a really strong relationship to written music. He has an amazing ability to breathe life into very complex scores. And Dave is just, Dave Tranquina plays bass. He's just made from soil. I mean, he just, he just always makes decisions that grounds the music. Because Slum Gum sometimes has a tendency, and especially uh, me and everyone in the band, has a tendency to become very ethereal. And we go, we go you know, kind of, um, we float. We float a bit. And Dave makes these decisions just all the time that really ground what we're doing and sort of brings it into context. And he's... he's uh, uh, gain that skill from years of playing bass in all kinds of contexts, from rock and reggae bands to all kinds of things. And also, uh, he studied classical bass as well, so he has really good bow chops. Is this? that idea of grounding a little bit more before you continue i'm interested just to hear more about that and what maybe an example of of how you ground yeah absolutely it seems to me that uh uh, in appreciating music or art in a lot of different ways there's a lot of different um angles you can take to it almost like frequencies you know if you if you hear a lot of as an example a lot of high frequencies that bubble in a sense of nothing really is a distinct melody line but it's this texture that sort of that uh, 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 creates this cloud above it it, ha- it, it, it it to me at least it stimulates this sort of like 
this sort of type of thought where you, you rise above your body. You start thinking, you know, uh, about uh, more idealistic things or shapes or abstractions. Whereas if something like uh, a low frequency or just a real basic rhythm comes in, it feels like that's like a guttural reaction. Like inside sure. of your intestines, there's some sort of like strong hold there. And that makes people just like yelp and dance and, and do all kinds of just things that just wreck their inhibitions, you know. Um, and so slum gum, what I, uh, what I hope we, we are working towards is this sort of cycle through all sorts of different appreciations of music that we, we'd like to do things that, that really make people lose it for a second just from the the raw primalness of it and we also want people to just sort of sit back and explore on uh, on these journeys through us exploring higher frequency or just more textural things that sort of you know some ways it can really create a trance in fact both can in different ways like a a more grounded thing can create a trance just from the repetition and the power whereas an ethereal thing can create a chance a trance from from uh, presenting this sort of soft focus of, of textures. Well, one thing I notice in a, a lot of, uh, I'm just going to use a generality, in, in, in bands that I think are kind of nestled in that rough same area that Slumcum is, yeah. is that the ethereal things, uh, often people have no inhibitions about sticking with those, the musicians sticking with those for a long time. But when they drop into one of those like really intense, rhythmic, low, maybe more grounded or more, uh, kind of basic primal, I think was the word you used. Sometimes it feels like those happen for a couple seconds and they go away again. It's almost as if, and I'm speaking in enormous generalities here, but almost as if that's not okay. Like, okay, we're, we're in this like primal kind of, you know, rhythmic thing, but that's not, but that's out of this headspace that we should be in or whatever. Sure. So I'm just curious about how you guys approach when you hit one of those patches. Is that the kind of thing you'll, you'll ride out in performance to see where it goes or? Well, certainly the answer to that question, yes. We, uh, a joy to us is seeing where things go. Sure. Just, and, and that goes to what I was saying earlier at the, at the Bible place about the compositional voices. Slum gum is very much 25% of all of our personalities. Sure. And in the same way, our performance, no one person necessarily is always going to take the lead. So we're very interested in, in playing our tunes, even our original tunes in ways that we've never thought of before. And we love writing it out because it'll always come to a place that we've never considered composing. It's almost like if you get out of your own way. Right. And as far as like the uh, avoiding primal rhythms or simplicity, I, I really think there's a consequence to higher jazz education. There's beautiful things that have come of it because you just get a bunch of intelligent and creative people in rooms all day for years to just think about music, you're going to come up with some really incredible things. But unfortunately, a lot of that isn't grounded because if all you do is just think about it, there's a danger in thinking almost too intellectually about music and, and discrediting things such as smooth jazz or West African rhythms with, because it, it serves supposedly no intellectual stimuli. You know, simply yeah. there's no intellectual weight to it. But those things can be just fantastic if you don't get caught up in like, is this a beautiful artistic decision we're making here? If you don't worry about that and whether people and institutions are going to listen to your music and appreciate it, I think it's a lot more free. 
Yeah. You can do primal things. You can do basic things, and you can see where those things lead you. Yeah. Get out of your own way, in a sense. Right. I kind of interrupted you before as you were describing the the band's contributions, and we had okay. So mo- the moving on, uh, the Trevor Andrews has a real strong background in uh, both uh, Nigerian and uh, I think it's uh, Naruban, the tribe that he studies with, which he studies a lot of talking drum work. Yoruba is that the Yoruba? Maybe yeah. it is. I, I apologize, Trevor, for not knowing. <laughs> and then uh, all four of us studied a little bit of the anglo Awe tribe from West Africa, their music. Um, and he got very deep into it, learning uh, the syllables of all the, the drum patterns and lead drum parts and uh, call and responses. He, he has a very extensive knowledge of that stuff. And he that has really inspired him in all kinds of ways. Compositionally, Eshu's trick is based on a lot of these rhythms and how he can set that to uh, melodies and, okay. and harmonic things. Um, and so he'll bring he'll bring that. He also has uh, a fascination with like Beethoven. So he's brought in things that have been inspired by Beethoven. So he's he's he brings like a lot of of great influences in as well. Um, and uh, I I really enjoy um, uh, I really enjoy my two favorite things about music are um, uh, indulging in intellectual. Uh, analysis of like like uh, Ligeti's music or Schoenberg or you know Baird, people like that. I really just enjoy analyzing that stuff. It's just you know like a crossword puzzle to me. I just right. think it's fun, and I also really enjoy um, uh, all sorts of improvisational music and uh, and electronic textures and stuff. So I'm very interested in sort of playing with those two worlds of of doing things on my off time that stimulate, you know, intellectual growth and then in performance just sort of letting all of that go and just sort of seeing what things come from like a, a subconscious approach to improvisation, I guess. Yeah. So just the four of us all kind of bring in all these interesting things and, and like I was saying earlier, it's just so fun for someone to bring in a composition in whatever stage and just see what, what happens to it in the incubation process and over years too and performances and it's just been a lot of fun. Did you guys uh, end up together by happenstance, or how did it? Uh, how did it... Well, we all went to school at the same time. We were all there, and uh, we just started doing a weekly jam session. Um, and it got just sort of wild. We just met every single week in this at a very late hour in CalArts, <laughs> which is a nice thing about that place. You can meet extremely late, and we would we do things like uh, we play. Uh, 
a Flowers of Love something for an hour and 20 minutes and just sort of played around with it. And we just do improvisational games. People would bring in pictures. It was just like, it was just like this laboratory of, uh, of improvisational sounds. And that sort of led into a band. Actually, when Dave wrote a composition called Slumgum, which just was a really interesting idea. It just had these, there was an introduction and there was these four cells that each person could kind of improvise in and out of. And so it took away the melodic structure and the harmonic structure. I'm sorry, it took away the harmonic structure and placed it on like improvisation based on a melodic structure. We thought, okay. oh, that's kind of a cool thing. We like the name. And, uh, and people just started bringing in songs. And then we just sort of, it was like a natural sort of growth. Yeah. You mentioned before that you um, often use improvisation as kind of an interstitial piece in between uh, longer compositions. So do your shows tend to be one long flow of music that's evolving over the course of time? Yeah, we like to do that, definitely. Sometimes we'll write out a set list and we'll say, let's blend into all of these things. And sometimes we'll just start playing and we'll play like 20 minutes of music and then stop and play one song and stop and play others. But we like to put ourselves on our toes as well. Sometimes we like to just play tune, 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 tune. Um, because, yeah, we just like to see what happens. But we've definitely done this sort of like stream of consciousness, 45 minutes of continuous music where we weave in and out of our own composition, sometimes playing a couple at once. And people will just uh, hint, like someone will play the melody of, of one of the songs and we'll just sort of float over there and, and then play that in whatever sense that that becomes it. It seems like it would require some discipline to really stay present when you're doing that, when it's, you're yeah. playing that long and, you know, you may not be playing for minutes at a time or whatever. Sure. Yeah, that was one of the, the first things that happened when we would do improvisations. Like, one or many of us would be like, man, I'm tired. Like, even if we'd only been doing it for 20 minutes or something, you're just tired. You're just like, oh, I got nothing left. Like, I can't say any more interesting things on my instrument. Right. Like, Can we just sit for a while? Or why don't you guys do something? But, um, and so in that way, it's kind of cool because it's training. You know, you have to train to, like, concentrate that hard and really kind of feel where everything's going. So that's been nice. And uh, getting to know each other's personality has been nice. And then another way that we've trained is we've memorized all of our tunes so we don't have to worry about, you know, uh, floating the, like, bringing the music up or something. And what we've been doing recently is memorizing each other's parts in the tunes to see what would happen if we kind of flip things up. So, oh, you wow. know... Just like a, a marriage or something, we like to keep it fresh yeah. in, in that sense, just to sort of see what the next thing that's going to happen. Yeah, no, that's a really cool idea. Thank you. 
guys are, uh, well, in the time frame of this show, either in the middle of or will have just completed, I'm not sure, but as we're speaking right now, about to embark on a tour right on the West Coast, is that right? Yes, that's yeah. true. Uh, when is it going until? Uh, it's from the 18th of April until the 29th of April. Okay, so it will have, unfortunately, completed by yeah. the time that this show yeah. airs. Yeah. yeah, that's fine. So we're going to... Uh, or we had just played. We're going to be playing uh, up in Sacramento, Portland. We're doing three nights in Seattle, which is really cool, and a uh, night in Denver, Boulder, and Santa Fe. Um, and then a couple clinics as well. We're doing a, a couple high school clinics, and we're doing a cool. clinic in uh, Sacramento, actually. And have you done those before? We have. We've done uh, a good handful, over a dozen clinics at universities and uh, high schools, middle schools. We did an elementary school once, which was really fun. Uh, it's something that we really, we really do enjoy doing. And how do, uh, I've, I've always believed that kids are made to unlearn the idea of improvisation. I wonder how they react when they, you know, everybody improvises when they're little. If you go sit at a piano, you're just improvising. For sure. And then it gets whacked out of you, and then maybe later you'll relearn how to do it. But I wonder how kids react to the kind of music that you guys play. They really like it. I mean, we did this school in uh, Denver and we played uh, a bit of a, you know, quote unquote wacky composition and they, and they were like jumping up at the end of it and they're like, Oh, I saw a, a kitty flying through the air or something. <laughs> I mean, they, they just had like all these images come to their head and they're like, Oh, that sounded like bees or something like they're just like, it was so uh, refreshing to hear that where it wasn't like, oh, that was an interesting use of a theme. It was more like that was really cool and it made me think of flying cats or whatever. Like it yeah. just like to have that real nice, um, like just fluid imagination going on. It was really cool. But what kinds of places do you play? What kinds of places will you be playing on this tour? What kinds of settings? On the tour? All kinds of things. In uh, uh, Sacramento, there's a really amazing musician and just creative hub named uh, Ross Hammond, and he puts on these weekly concert series that are just really conducive to touring bands, and we're going to be playing um, with, uh, uh, with him, and uh, um, it's just, you get to hear all these different musicians, because he'll always put together like a different band for the thing, and there's a great exchange, and there's a really cool vibrancy in Sacramento as far as that creative music, and I think a lot of it's due to his involvement. In fact, he does a great um, improvised or just you know creative music festival called In the Flow, which will be in mid-May in Sacramento, where Vinnie Golia is going to be coming up. A really fantastic tenor player from uh, San Francisco, Philip Greenleaf, will be playing. Uh, and uh, there's there's like it's like a really neat festival, and he just brings that to the city. It's just that. Oh, that's thing. great. Um, and then we're going to Portland. We're going to be playing at uh, this sort of lounge in the back of a tea room out there in downtown Portland, and we can really make it whatever we want. In Seattle, we're playing a great jazz festival called the Ballard Jazz Walk as part of the Ballard Jazz Festival where they open up all these venues in Ballard and you pay like a, a lump sum and you get to just walk around this really nice neighborhood that's sort of a mix of like um, rocker kids and old fishermen. And like it's a, just a, a cool neighborhood. I used to live in Seattle for a bit. And uh, we're going to be playing after a new quartet of Kwong Vu's on the same in the same space. Is that the band that's on the Leap of Faith record? You know the Kung Fu. Uh, no, it's uh, it's uh, this new band called Burn List. Oh I yeah, think it's yeah yeah. Like, cool. Uh, yeah, this is one of their first performances. Nice. Uh, but really great musicians, and that'll be a lot of fun. And then we're playing. They've done an amazing thing up there called the Racer Sessions, which is just this real open laboratory. Which, you know, we're talking just about it. 
where people will host a racer session. They'll play an opening set, and then for the second set, I've never been to one. This is very exciting. We get to go to one. For the second set, they come up with some concept that will provide the uh, the basis for the improvisation. So someone will come up with like, okay, we're all going to improvise thinking of this or that, oh, wow. and then that's totally open, like with no music. So we're going to be doing that. We're going to be hosting a session. Uh, and then we go down to Denver to play at a really great club called Dazzle, which is a, a great jazz hall down there. And uh, in Santa Fe, we're playing at a place called Little Wing, which is sort of like a community art space. with the, And then that's through a really amazing uh, musician and uh, creative music figure in Santa Fe named Mark Weaver. Wow. So that'll be fun. Yeah, it's really cool. I, it's so easy to become really provincial you know, I've been on the East Coast now for a bunch of years, and all the years that I've been doing jazz broadcasting, except the very beginning, I've been on the East Coast. And so I know nothing about what's happening in Sacramento or Denver or any place else, and it's really cool to hear that there's still so much experimental music going on out there. Yeah, absolutely. It seems that people, like especially nowadays, like individuals will move all over the place and, and pick up all these amazing experiences and... Uh, and uh, and really form a strong ideology. And there's just great music everywhere, really good people. It's, yeah. it's nice. Although it's much more difficult touring on the West Coast than I'd imagine on the East Coast. You, there's a lot of space. Yeah. I mean, just the tour itinerary you've just described is uh, a couple thousand miles of, yeah. <laughs> of travel, it sounds a lot, like. So. A lot of driving, yeah. a lot of alphabet games. <laughs> uh, can you talk about why you're here in New York? Uh, I'm here in New York because I play uh, electric bass for the Vinnie Golia sextet. And Vinnie Golia is just a awesome luminary figure in the improvised like avant-garde jazz world and so he hosted the first half of april at the stone he was curating it and uh i play in his band back in los angeles um with some really fine musicians and uh we were we just came out to play and then we're playing again tonight you know uh, at uh, this place in bushwick called cafe orwell have you always played both bass and saxophone uh yeah i played a lot of bass in high school uh, just for fun, kind of just, you know, learning whatever, like rock songs. Yeah. And I was really into Curtis Mayfield. Nice. I, I, like, learned all the uh, Superfly bass lines just because I thought they were the greatest. And still and do. They still are. Yeah, they're still yeah. the greatest, man. <laughs> and Willie Weeks and these people, like all of Donny yeah. Hathaway's stuff, I was just really into it um, and still am. And then when I went to CalArts especially, um, and also when I was living in Seattle, going to the University of Washington, I kind of put it down. I didn't think much of it. I had this old Samick that I bought at a pawn shop when I was in high school. And I really focused on saxophone and, you know, piano, like with like learning music and stuff like this and the reeds and whatnot. And it was after CalArts that I really thought like, man, like that used to be a big part of my personality. And so I picked it up again and started playing in rock bands in LA just to kind of keep my chops up. And then then he asked me to join the band when a really fine bass player named Sam and I left the group to move here, to move to New York. So it's Did you put it down years. because of triage or you just, you know, there were only so many things you could focus on? Or yeah, there's just so many things you can focus yeah. on. So it wasn't, uh, we never had a fight. Like, right. I, still, I still listen to music <laughs> with the bass turned way up. Like, it's still like a great love of mine, you know. Um, just big, voluptuous, low-frequency notes are just fantastic to me. Um, but then it was just like, oh, man, I should do this some more. Do you find that you've been writing or, or playing differently now that you've picked the bass back up again? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. But that's, that's true with anything. Like, it, it feels to me that in my personal experience being a musician, and it seems like a lot of people, people just go through these 
awesome phases where they'll get really into something for a while and that'll inform their composition and they'll get into something else and they'll really inform their composition. And it's just this cyclical thing where it comes back and it, it sort of just comes out of your personality more naturally. And with the bass, I just always like writing bass lines. Because I can, you know, play it a bit and sort of like see what's going to feel good on the instrument. Right. Which has always been an important thing for me when you compose is to see like how it's going to feel. Like what's the actual like feel of it. It's almost more important than the harmonic structure is how if the instrumentalist can play it like well. Yeah. You know, and comfortably. In an episode that hasn't aired yet, Billy Harper said almost the same thing the other day when I, he was saying that um, it's easy to write something that sounds good. It's much harder to write something that feels good. Yeah, and uh, totally. you know, he was saying that he'll write tons and tons of stuff, but he has to get it to a point where I think the phrase he used was until it almost makes me cry. And then oh, I know that it's worth keeping. You know? Yeah, that's good. I like that. Yeah. Um, does uh, in, in Slumgum, are there... Are there composed sections where everyone's parts are written out? Yeah, uh, certainly. Um, it sounds very much like that when I listen to the record. That they, but it's, it's it's still it's in that gray area where I listen to it and I can't tell. Am I hearing really precise written material or am I hearing uh, improvised music played by people who know each other really well? And you know, it's, sometimes it's hard to tell those things apart. I find. Well, that, that's fantastic, and uh, that's perfect. Cool. Like, there's there's no. <laughs> I mean, uh, we'll, we could, I mean, we could definitely probably off air because it'd be boring, go through like specific sections. But, um, but yeah, that's exactly where we kind of want to be, you know, and some, just to simplify it, we kind of want to play composed music so that it feels improvised and you want to improvise music so that it feels composed, you know? Yeah. As you kind of look at the, at the arc of the band, do you see the, the band's sound or methodology heading in a particular direction or? Is it, can you look down the road and, and guess at what's going to happen? I think that's been the, the, one of my, one of the, the great things to me, for my experience with Slumgum is that when you start to push a composition or the sound of the band in a certain direction, 
it never ends up there and it always ends up in some wonderful place you didn't even know exists. Like, you know. And I think that's sort of, we've all really grown to accept that. And we, what's been the, the trend is there'll just be a crop of tunes. Like, it just seems like there's these ebbs and flows of compositional input where all of us will write a couple tunes or someone will write three tunes or something. And these flows of tunes kind of inform our sound. So even after the record, there's been a little crop of tunes that have floated in that we're going to play with on the tour. And sort of, I think by the end of the tour, it's really, there's going to be sort of a new thing that Slumgum's going to be doing. And I like that. I like that it's always sort of changing. You know, some overgrowth will happen and then you'll clear that. And then like there's some mushrooms that just grew. I mean, it's really very right. much like this sort of like forest floor of, of yeah. uh, influence. And is the band run like a collective? Very much so. We used, to, uh, uh, we used to experiment with having an individual lead each rehearsal. And to a point, we do that now more informally. Like someone will just be like, hey, this is something, you know, I listened to the album and I was thinking we should work on this. And they'll be like, great idea. And uh, so we really, we really uh, stress and encourage people thinking and bringing in games or some sort of specific um, uh, uh, thing to work on, basically. So yeah. we kind of like that. But for the most part, we just show up and we're like, okay, we kind of all need to work on this or that. And then it's just a joy when someone's like, hey, I got this cool game. Let's try it, sort of see what happens. Will you say more about uh, improvisational games? I, I think many people who are listening probably don't know what those are, how they, how they work. Yeah, well, for sure. Um, there's, uh, you can do things like, uh, well, for instance, our, our piano player came up with one where it was, um, well, we played at the Rubin. We played at the, uh, the Rubin Art Museum in Chelsea through the uh, Harlem and the Himalayas concert series. And for that, they ask that you compose music based on the art that they have. Okay. So one of the things that they had, and we looked online because we, un we unfortunately couldn't just go browse the museum right. before the gig. We were only going to be here a couple days before. And so Rory, our piano player, was very inspired by the concept of a mandala. And so he thought a while about it, and he came up with this, essentially, an improv game. He had a, a composed section at the beginning, and then the improv game was this, like, uh, I think it was two bars of very slow 4-4, as the form and he would play this chord and this ostinato in the fir on the on the first beat of the first bar and then a chord and an ostinato on the second beat of the on the first beat of the second chord and the 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 game was is to add something somewhere in those two bars and every time it comes around keep repeating that and on our own we add something new somewhere else and so it was like even visually it was you close your eyes and when you when you do that game you just think about, you just sort of see these two bars sort of in front of you, and you just think about just placing these these notes in these different forms. Yeah. And if each one of us is doing that in this different setting, it kind of creates this really interesting texture that no one really would have been able to compose or think of on themselves. So that's that's one example of a game that almost, like I was saying earlier, lets you get out of your own way because when you right. when you don't when you don't obsess over something, then it, it really lets something a little little deeper buried in there wherever yeah. it is kind of come out and like these these textures would come that would be really neat so that was a fun concentration game um, another one would be okay everyone swing but nobody play in the same time you know and like we'll just see where that goes and what right. kind of things can happen and that also there's like a couple brackets you could do one would be stick with your time like do not like alter your thing at all like just go like 
brazenly forward and the other one is like play around with it and all of this inspired is is not directly but but certainly um, is inspired by a man named Art Landy who's a phenomenal piano player that lives in Denver that was a mentor of both Trevor and Rory because they both spent Trevor the drummer Rory the piano player they both spent a lot of time in Denver and we all have gotten to know him and he has a lot of amazing um, uh, things to say about improvised music and he does these clinics and one of my favorite things that he said is there's a couple decisions you can make in improvised music. You can play with people, you can play against people, or you can accompany or you can solo. Like it's just one parameter. Right. And so in this sense, you get to play with the idea of playing against people, which is sort of an interesting vibe. To, yeah. You know, so yeah. those would be a couple of them. Yeah, that's great. Uh, are there things I haven't asked you about, about uh, the band or yourself that you want to mention? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> maybe uh maybe just the i don't know the arc of the record sure uh yeah. just to speak quickly about that w what we thought would be neat is one of these songs big fun that trevor wrote is just a like i was saying earlier just these four phrases of one melody and that's it that's the whole composition and we did i think 35 takes of it uh ranging from one to three mu minutes some of them uh purely acapella which won't see the light of day <laughs> Probably. We'll see. Maybe we'll do a remix. I bet they will. Yeah, in some form. There's probably going to be some uh, some effects on them. But it was just this really fun way to cleanse the palate in the recording studio, which can sometimes be a tense place. So um, you did those takes in between the recording of other compositions? Absolutely. Okay. And in fact, when we did the recording, we actually just would do a set. We would do like that tune, that tune, that tune. We'd do like five different tunes in a row, and then we'd do it again just so we okay. didn't harp on something. And with the, with the creation of the album, what kind of came out was to sort of sandwich these big fun compositions in between all of the, the longer and more through composed material as little palette cleansers to sort of either tease the next song or give you a break from the song before. And we right. just thought it was like this kind of cool dichotomy, um, as far as the form, which, which cardboard flavor fire, but the song that became the album title really also plays with um, this this sort of play between something very structured and something very light, and we kind of like how the arc of the album sort of plays with uh, with that, and we kind of like the uh, we we enjoy that it, it became a, a bit of a surreal experience to listen to it, where it, it kind of plays with this dreamlike state, this sort of like um, Trevor put it really well when he said it, it's sort of like the the moment before you go to sleep or the moment when you just wake up, like just sort of playing with that in between subconscious and conscious. And it also sounds like you approached the album as an album, not a collection of individual pieces. Yeah, which... certainly. Yeah, we like it. Uh, like what I was saying before about the growth of Slumgum being um, uh, based on what songs are coming in and what we're going through in our lives and uh, just where we are as a band. This is, I think this is a, a, a good snapshot of where we are and are currently moving away from. Yeah, well, that's great. My guest is John Armstrong. He's uh, part of the band Slumgum, and uh, it's been a pleasure to meet you, man, and, and to talk about this record. Thanks you very much. You as well. Thank you very much. It's been, it's been great. Thanks.
music from Slumgum. My thanks to John Armstrong for trekking around New York City with me. I'm Jason Crane. This is the Jazz Session, presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. I forgot to do this at the top of the show, so my thanks to the Respect Sextet for the theme music to this program. They're online at RespectSextet.com. Thanks also to Dave Rabel, who designed the show's logo, and he tweets at Twitter.com slash Dave Rabel, V-R-A-B-E-L. Now get out there and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on the Jazz Session. Thank you for listening. Bye.